Hello, it's John Dennis on Tuesday the 9th of March. Today we look at the UK's housing market. Is last year's mini recovery still on track? Anecdotally, what you hear from people is that um, as soon as a few houses go in a road, suddenly the road is full of estate agents' boards again. Also today, family members of the murdered Russian exile Alexander Litvinenko say they're being persecuted in Italy, where they fled to start a new life, and they're blaming Silvio Berlusconi. The Litvinenkos tried to open a, a restaurant in the seaside town of Rimini and have faced what they say is a, is a campaign of, of sort of dedicated persecution by the local police. And the wildlife minister, Hugh Iranka-Davies, explains how a foreign insect is to be released into the UK's ecosystem in the hope that it'll munch its way through the notorious scourge of British gardeners, Japanese knotweed. It particularly targets Japanese knotweed and it weakens it. It doesn't destroy it, but it weakens it to the extent that the treatment of it and the hacking back and the eradication of it becomes a lot, lot easier. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk. First, our top story. In the housing market, there were more potential sellers than buyers last month. That's according to the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors. So there was an easing of the shortage of homes for sale. As Dan Roberts, our head of business, explains. RICS, which is the sort of represents the posh end of estate agents, effectively, they're the chartered surveyors, they do a, a survey every month saying, on balance, which of their members think prices are going up and which are falling. And in, in January, it fell negative as the stamp duty holiday uh, ended and the cold weather sort of seemed to uh, put a lot of transactions into the deep freeze. February, they say, was positive. Now, uh, the interesting thing is this comes after a whole bunch of the building societies and the banks who also do their own ch- charting of the house housing market they've recently saying things have been going negative so this is the first bit of good news we've had after a few weeks of bad news i think the bottom line that people really need to get a sense of is that we're at a we seem to be at a turning point in the housing market that the the recovery that happened last year um after the crash seems to have been petering out and we're at that kind of inflection point now where data is pointing in all sorts of different directions and the honest answer if people are honest about it is nobody knows what's happening but in the long run it's going to be a long time before the housing market uh, goes anywhere near uh, the house prices go anywhere near um, the levels they were a couple of years ago well you'd you'd think that um but i mean in in london and the southeast there's been a number of reports that have shown that 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 prices are back up to those record levels and um the 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 national picture is obviously very different because of this, the, the London skew. But I mean, our, our view internally here at The Guardian is that um, the housing market is very fragile. I mean, we, we do think that, that that boom last year has, has, has fizzled out. And um, you, you, one of the artificial things that has been making making prices look stronger is that people were very reluctant to put their houses on the market. So there was a shortage of supply. Now, anecdotally, what you hear from people is that um, as soon as a few houses go in a road, suddenly the road is full of estate agents boards again. And what really matters is do those prices hold once there is a proper amount of supply out there. Now what we seem to have been having from from um, some of these more forward-looking surveys recently is that that's, those prices don't hold and that people, you know, are still feeling very financially insecure and that the, uh, the, the market looks pretty fragile. And meanwhile Foxton's, one of the more aggressive chains of estate agents, um, looks to be in some trouble. Well, it, yes, it, we've reached, we've just finally got the company's house report that it put out for its performance in two thousand and eight, which seems an age ago in the in this uh, busy period. But um, 
it, it was delayed because it was in uh, enormous amounts of financial res- re- trouble. It pretty much went bust and had to be sort of the, the shares handed over to its bankers. And um, the results we've just seen show us a glimpse into how bad its finances got after the uh, the market crash. I mean, it made a loss of well over 200 million. And anybody who, I mean, Foxton's is again, I'm, I'm a bit London-centric bias here. It's particularly well known in the, in, in the southeast, although it operates elsewhere. But um, its famous minis and hugely flash showrooms and things were to many people are sort of the, 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 the kind of epitome of the of the boom years. So the sight of it kind of virtually going bust in 2008 will um, bring a degree of schadenfreude, I imagine. Although listeners perhaps should put that schadenfreude on hold a little bit because John Hunt, the bloke who... Uh, brought Froxton to such prominence um, got out while the going was good well yes he had spectacular timing which is another reason you should always look at what stage agents do rather than they say and he uh, just before the market topped out he sold out so he's fine I mean last seen I think uh, thank, thank god yes last seen <laughs> doing up a large house in West London I think according to the Evening Standard the other thing to bear in mind is Foxton say they're doing very well at the moment and, and if you look at the amount of estate agent boards suddenly erupting uh, like wildfire across London in the southeast, um, you can see why they th- they think that this uh, 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 this thaw that we had uh, before Christmas, when when prices did start to move up again, they hope this is um, is lasting, and and they're and they're, they're hoping it's back to boom time. So um, anybody who thought that the crash had somehow killed off the sort of the evils of estate agents, um, I think, is sadly in for a surprise. Dan Roberts, and there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash business. Also on The Guardian's website. I'm Alex Kratoski, presenter of The Guardian's Tech Weekly podcast. And on this week, we're looking at the BBC, the strategic review and the implications for the digital landscape. We're also looking at an iPhone app developer from the north of England who's come up against the BBC for creating an iPhone app that streams content like the BBC's iPlayer. Mercedes Buns speaks with Bing, Microsoft's search engine, about their new mapping technology. And Bobby Johnson heads to the bings, bongs, blips and thwacks of the Musée Mécanique in San Francisco. You can hear this today from guardian.co.uk slash A tiny sap-sucking insect is to be introduced to Britain to aid the fight against Japanese knotweed. The plant wreaks havoc. It damages buildings, roads, railways and drains, as well as the countryside. And it has no natural enemies in Britain. Until now. Wildlife Minister Hugh Ranka davies has given the go-ahead for this species of lice to be released at several sites in the UK. What this has come from is the, the massive problem now that uh, Japanese knotweed is. And I know that coming from South Wales. But if you look at places like uh, Cornwall, if you look at the whole of the South West, in fact... You have this problem with this weed. It's an invasive Japanese weed that people, uh, I think, will be familiar with because you see it on the side of railways, uh, British waterways properties, and it causes damage to the tune of about £150 million every single year, ripping it up, cutting it down, treating it with chemicals. It's a, it's a real, a real huge problem. It's listed by the World Conservation Union as one of the top 100 worst invasive species that we have globally. And so releasing this creature, this tiny insect, what difference will that make? Right, well, this little creature called, uh, and excuse my Latin, please, my apologies in advance, uh, Afalara itadori. It's a tiny little bug, a a psyllid it's known as, and it's, it's a natural predator 
of the Japanese knotweed back home in Japan. It particularly targets Japanese knotweed and it weakens it. It doesn't destroy it, but it weakens it to the extent that the treatment of it and the hacking back and the eradication of it becomes a lot, lot easier. So potentially a lot less cost, a lot less damage. Uh, and the sort of damage that this um, uh, plant does is it, it literally cracks paving slabs, moves railway lines and so on. So this little insect can weaken it to such an extent that the treatment of it and the eradication uh, can be done much, much easier. But we're not going ahead with a whole scale uh, release. We've been testing it now in the UK for, well, probably around a year and more uh, within laboratory conditions on about 90 different UK plant types, including plants that are quite similar to the, uh, the, the family, the genus of uh, knotweed, to see whether this insect would affect any of our native plants. And the good news is that it hasn't. But what we're doing now is going to the next stage where under very closely, closely protected sites, we see in a real environment whether it does an equally good job of weakening the knotweed, but again, without actually affecting our own plants. So it's not a whole-scale rollout. It's now uh, some test sites around the UK to see if it works out in the open air. And how long before we know whether it will be safe enough to roll out across the cold country? We could be looking at around a year, 18 months. And that's not a long time in the big scheme of things, particularly when we've been living with this horrendous invasive species now for the last few decades, and it's getting more and more prevalent. So if, if we are fortunate enough to have found part of the way forward with this little insect, Athalara itadori, that can help us treat this, then maybe in 12 or 18 months, we'll have some idea as to whether we can uh, use this on a wider scale within the UK. But we have to make sure, first of all, that it doesn't cause any problems. Huey Ranker-Davies. My name's John Dennis. You're listening to Guardian Daily. After the Russian exile Alexander Litvinenko was murdered in London in 2006, members of his family fled Russia for Italy's Adriatic coast. But they're not finding life any easier there, as Luke Harding reports from Senegalia, south of Rimini. I went to see them in this rather um, small, sleepy seaside town called Senegalia. They've been here for the last two years, having fled Russia in 2008, two years after Alexander Litvinenko, as you remember, was kind of gruesomely murdered with polonium um, in London. Now, basically, they say that their life in Russia was unbearable, that they were getting threats. Uh, there were hints that Walter Litvinenko's teenage grandson would be conscripted into the army and come back in a body bag. And they decided they would seek a new life in Europe and come to Italy, where Walter Litvinenko's youngest son, Maxime, was already resident. And has it worked out for them? No, it hasn't. In fact, rather the reverse. To their kind of great surprise, their um, applications for asylum here in Italy have not been accepted. They haven't been rejected, but they've had nothing back from the Italian authorities whatsoever, despite two trips to um, immigration. And in addition to that, the Litvinenkos tried to open a, a restaurant in the seaside town of Rimini and have faced what they say is a, is a campaign of, of sort of dedicated persecution by the local police who um, on one occasion even busted into the restaurant late at night, grabbed Tatiana Litvinenko, this is Alexander Litvinenko's sister, by the arm, pushed her over, smashing her head against the floor, and she suffered severe concussion. Now, the, the restaurant is now shut down, and the Litvinenkos are broke, living in a small flat with no heating, three bedrooms, all nine of them, and, and living off food supplied by the local church. Now, the interesting thing is when I said to Walter Litvinenko, who do you blame for this? He 
absolutely squarely blames Silvio Berlusconi, Italy's leader, and says the reason they've been so shabbily treated in Italy is because Berlusconi does not want to offend his, his very good friend in Russia, Vladimir Putin. What have the Italian authorities said about this? Well, we're chasing the Italian authorities at the moment to try and get some reaction from them. But, but certainly people we know who've fallen out with Berlusconi, there's one senator in particular we've spoken to who used to be in his party and now isn't, um, and who resigned because he was upset about Berlusconi's sort of closeness to Vladimir Putin and says that this is entirely plausible. Certainly, if, if you remember what happened between Britain and Russia, the reason London and Moscow fell out so catastrophically was after British courts granted asylum both to Alexander Litvinenko in 2000 and to Boris Berezovsky, Putin's kind of arch foe. And, and, and the whole asylum issue is, is a major bone of contention still between the two countries. And while, you know, it's hard to be categorical, it does seem inexplicable that, that the Litvinenkos, given what's happened to them, that, that, that their asylum application is taking so long. And in the meantime, that they're reduced to this sort of semi-beggary with, with no money and unable to pay next month's rent bill. And are they going to persist with their claim? Well, well, they are. The problem is they've got no choice. They, they sold up all their property. They, they were living in the southern town of Nalchik. They sold their flats. Walter Litvinenko sold his apple orchard. Uh, and they invested everything in this business, which has now gone wrong, um, unfairly, they think. So there's no way back for them to Russia, where, where you, know, you have to remember that they've also been described as sort of traitors and British spies and all sorts of things. But at the same time, they're, they're getting no subsidy from the Italian government. That They have to pay their own bus fares whenever they go and see immigration officials. And, and and they're having a wretched time. And Tatiana Litvinenko, when I spoke to her, was saying, you know, we, we thought the law w- worked in Europe. We thought everything was 100%. Uh, but it feels as if we've ended up in some Russian province. Luke Harding. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. Is Britain broken, as David Cameron would have it? Well, there was an all-star panel at The Guardian's headquarters in King's Place last night uh, debating just that, including our columnist, Polly Toynbee. In the usual way of taking horror stories, anecdotes, terrible events, which are part of all human society always, whether it's, you know, the Bulger case or the Edlington Boys or, or whoever... And inflating that into being a symptom of something, never mind statistics, boring figures, nobody trusts statistics anyway, just say, you know, here is, here is an example of what we've come to these days. I mean, I have to admit that it is what all oppositions do. Labour did it all the time, mercilessly, uh, endlessly. And of course, you know, Tony Blair famously used the Bulger case himself in exactly the same way, entirely shameless and entirely without shreds of statistics either. So it's a very easy wire to tweak, if you like, and make people feel that everything's worse. But in the end, the statistics matter. And of course, the figures have to be fireproof. uh, And nobody believes them anymore because all political parties, including the Labour Party, have fiddled with them in various ways at various times. Nevertheless, we now do have an entirely independent Office of National Statistics, National Statistics, Um, who produce the figures, and nobody else is allowed to mediate the crime figures, and without any shadow of a doubt, the crime figures, by every measurement you care to look at, have fallen dramatically. Uh, 41% down, violent crime down, all crime down. Now, you can't really talk about a broken Britain in the term, these apocalyptic terms that are used. If... um, 
Crime is going in the opposite direction. Polly Toynbee and news of another Guardian event. On Tuesday the 16th of March, Politics Weekly will be recorded in front of a live studio audience in Manchester with a panel of our top commentators. Polly Toynbee, Michael White and John Harris will be on the panel at Manchester University as our politics podcast goes on the road in the run-up to the general election. Well, if you're in the Manchester area, come along. You can pitch questions to our panel and hear what they have to say about the key issues as Britain goes to the polls. Tickets are £5.00 and uh, you can find out how to buy one at, or indeed more than one, guardian.co.uk slash politicsweekly. Phil Maynard was the producer of today's edition of Guardian Daily, and my name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.